Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. This is Alpha Chat. Gary Loveman trained at MIT. He taught at Harvard Business School, and then he consulted for Harrah's, the casino, in Vegas. That was in the late 90s. He knew nothing about gambling, but he understood customer loyalty, and that got him promoted to CEO. Well, the Las Vegas Strip is actually a, a, quite a powerful and almost pure example of the type of product competition that is extreme in the sense that a, a person who wishes to play a slot machine or bet at a card table can do so in and out of any of the casinos on the Las Vegas Strip without paying any sort of entry fee. They don't have to stay. He took a company that was trading at $14 a share. He sold it a decade later to private equity for $90 a share. He spoke with the FT's Sujit Indap earlier this year about how gamblers are a unique kind of consumer and how data science is helping CEOs in many industries make better decisions. So the promise of economics is the notion that you can take a given level of resources and do more with it for the betterment of more people. I was the son of a factory worker who lived in a neighborhood full of other factory workers as a child, and it seemed to me that there must be a way to get more out of what was available there than we all experienced. So the discipline of economics, which I was introduced to in college and then studied on an applied basis at the Federal Reserve, seemed like a very powerful tool for the advancement of that idea. And uh, that's proven to, in fact, be the case in the work that I've had since. And so from MIT, you go across the Charles River to Harvard Business School. There you're a well-regarded professor of marketing at the most prestigious management school in the world. How did you like being an academic? Well, I liked being that sort of an academic. So in this instance, when you're teaching at the Harvard Business School, your students are people who want to be business people. They don't want to be academics, whereas if you're teaching at MIT, where I was a student, all of the students want to be like the professor. At the Harvard Business School, they, have, they make no bones about wanting to be like the professor. They want to be like other business leaders that they see in the world. And it gives your work a very pragmatic focus, which I enjoyed a great deal. It's the mid-1990s by now, and uh, you, write, you co-write this influential paper called Putting the Service Profit Chain to Work. Uh, and on the side, you're consulting for big companies uh, and a La- uh, Las Vegas casino chain called Harris Calls. And a consulting gig turns into the COO job uh, and eventually turns into the CEO job, which you're commuting from Boston to Vegas. Tell us about how that opportunity came up and uh, what was interesting to, to sign up for that, for that consulting yeah, well, the, job. For- the origins of that job, Suji, were really quite interesting. So The casino industry had always competed on the basis of having the most opulent offering to provide to its guests. 
And as one's facility became relatively less opulent, typically the business would diminish as people moved to whatever was the newest and most opulent offering in the, in the marketplace. And the ideas I had been teaching at Harvard in my courses there focused on how one could get information about a purchaser and envelop them with reasons to be loyal to that offering, even if certain attributes of the offering were not at the same level of refinement as one found at other places. So this idea had tremendous application to the casino industry, even though I had very little exposure to the casino industry up to this point. So I did a little teaching on Harrah's behalf. I learned a little bit about the business. And uh, I wrote an unsolicited letter to the fellow who was the CEO at the time and suggested to him that there was a different way to grow the business other than chasing the ever-increasing capital investment levels that had been known to the casino industry historically. And that was to gather information about customers, learn what they really valued, and then try to deliver very customized experiences, even if the customers were not worth a great deal of money on any given occasion. And to his credit, he found that idea powerful and out of the absolute blue asked me one morning if I would take a sabbatical from Harvard and come and apply these ideas for the two years that Harvard allows under a sabbatical. And then we would all hopefully have benefited and we'd all go back to what we were doing before. The problem is I didn't go back. I stuck for 16 years. And so you've said before, it's hard to sell a product that isn't improving. Uh, and you talked about this idea of the box of a casino between different casinos is basically the same inside. The difference is what's on the outside. And you compare Harris to Bellagio to City Center, which all had different levels of investment and resources to, um, to build that outside part of the box. Well, the Las Vegas Strip is actually a, a, quite a powerful and almost pure example of the type of product competition that is extreme in the sense that a, a person who wishes to play a slot machine or bet at a card table can do so in and out of any of the casinos on the Las Vegas Strip without paying any sort of entry fee. They don't have to stay in the hotel. They don't have to buy a fancy meal. They can simply walk in and play the same games under essentially the same terms. So the question is, why would a person go into a building that cost $300 million 15 years ago, which is one I had, when they could go 100 meters up the street and go into Steve Wynn's new $1.9 billion spectacular building and play the same games under the same terms. So if you were to ever get anyone to do the former, you would have to offer them some other benefit of that visit that wasn't captured in the opulence of the building. And those were the things we tried to discern by looking at what it is people enjoyed in their visits, how we could customize their experience with us, and build a series of attributes of the visit that, that we could replicate and distinguish from the better building down the street. And this is the idea of Total Rewards, which is the, the loyalty program, if you will, that you built for the, the Harris system uh, around the country. Explain what the thinking behind Total Rewards was and, and how it worked. Well, the idea is really quite, quite basic, and it, it's now my work in healthcare. Uh, my work in healthcare involves the application of essentially the same notion, which is that you need to have some sort of exchange between the parties that allows one person to teach you about what they're interested in and allows you to pay them for having taught you through things they actually care about and can use in a, in a very practical manner. So total rewards is a currency that people earn by visiting a casino or a hotel or the other features of the, of the resort. And we took the data that was generated from those visits. We made predictions about what the customer would enjoy in the future. And then we encouraged them to consolidate their business in our category with us by coming back more frequently and expressing more loyalty. 
And the total rewards system is a framework. Think of it as a currency account system that mediates that series of transactions. And so when you were at Harvard studying companies and how they drove customer loyalty, what other businesses at the time were interesting or were ahead of the curve in, in understanding what really drove repeat customers and repeat business? Well, if you think about what first, what does loyalty mean? Loyalty means that at the margin, you're going to make a decision in favor of the person or entity to whom you are loyal, other things equal, yeah. or perhaps even not quite equal. So one of the cases that I leaned on heavily at the time was the airline industry, where the airline captured a tremendous amount of information about our experiences, but didn't reflect any of it in the way we were treated. So for example, if you flew and your flight was on time, your bags were handled properly and the trip was uneventful, you would feel fairly favorably toward the airline. On the other hand, if the flight was terribly late, such that your trip was ruined, your bags were lost, you would feel quite hostile toward the airline. The airline knew which of the two of these things had occurred, yet it didn't act any differently between one and the other circumstances to try to encourage the loyalty of the patron. So using that as perhaps the counterexample, in the casino business, of course, sometimes people win, sometimes they lose, sometimes they lose badly, sometimes they win rather extraordinarily. So why not take the same information and craft it to say, what's the relationship with the guest right now and how would we motivate them to feel favorably toward us and hence express loyalty in the future? So a lot of the examples we leaned on, these included several of my colleagues at Harvard at the time, were examples of how not to do it. So moving companies with their notoriously awful service, airlines or ski resorts that couldn't distinguish between a person who was there every weekend and a person who was there once a year, uh, and hence couldn't really tailor the experience to support the loyalty you were seeking. And so one of the interesting insights you talk about uh, at Harris is that the most valuable customers weren't necessarily the high rollers, which seems counterintuitive and surprising to someone who doesn't have the data. What was, what was the finding you, your team found about what was really uh, the source of value for Harris, the customer that was the source of value? Yeah, well, what I would say is that the, the most valuable customer for us was not necessarily the high roller. So uh, any business, almost any business sits in a competitive context where certain of your competitors are focused on certain segments of guests or customers, and you may be focused on others. At the time I started, we didn't have the assets to appeal to the highest-end customers in the world. People like Steve Wynn had those assets. What we found was that rather than chasing those customers, it was better for us to chase the customers that were a segment or two below the most luxurious customers and focus in a way they had never experienced before to customize what was available to them. And they were frequent enough visitors with sufficient budgets that they would be very profitable for us if they were treated in a differentiated way. And you've made this point that uh, companies have this habit of paying attention to the most to the customer who walks in first, or is the most just obvious in front of them, rather than the most valuable. Explain that idea and what, what the flaw is, why companies uh, are susceptible to that and the mistake they make there. Well, this article that you mentioned, this putting the service profit chain to work article, made the simple point that the critical driver of profitability is the manifest loyalty of your customers and not simply what order they arrived in or how many of them you have or something of that sort. So the idea is that if you have a group of customers walking in a retail store, for example, Certain of them have been with you and are very loyal to you and make decisions in your favor frequently. Others 
are only there because there may be a price that you're offering that's especially appealing that day. And if you have one salesperson to help one person or the other, you want to assign that person to the one who has the greatest lifetime benefit to you, which is the first of those two customers. So for example, when Brad Anderson was the CEO of Best Buy, I used to torture him with uh, asking how it could be that the way to allocate a new electronic gadget around the holiday was to give it to the person who slept on the sidewalk the longest before the store opened. When instead, why not give it to the person who had the greatest manifest loyalty to Best Buy and use these scarce products as a manifestation of that or a reward for that loyalty? Does Best Buy know who that customer is, is the question. Well, they did. They just didn't work very hard at, at doing much about it. So since we all now buy things that are scanned and almost always through an electronic payment mechanism, most every company has the ability to know who their best customers are. They have to work a little bit at it, but it's certainly well within their capacity to know that. The challenge is, what do they do about it? So another favorite whipping post of mine through the years has been the grocery stores who scan literally everything we buy, and most of us shop at the same place a lot. Yet we find that the only service advantage offered anyone in a store is to those who buy the least, that is the express checkout purchaser. And very often, those of us that own a dog are given cat food ads and the elderly are given baby product solicitations. And there's all these uh, reinforcing notions that the store isn't really paying attention to what we're showing them we do. So there's tremendous opportunity not always used. And so you're at Harris for around 15 years. The stock price goes from $14 to $90 by the time of the $30 billion buyout and you know, seven, you stay through a bunch of difficult years post-buyout after the financial crisis, but then you uh, end up at Aetna, which is a, a very different business uh, than a casino chain. It's a huge American health insurance company or, or payer, totally different industry, and your mandate is to take massive amounts of customer or patient data and drive better health outcomes. And before we get into what you were doing there, maybe in your own words, explain what you think is the the original sin of the uh, American healthcare system and the opportunity for data to, to address that? Well, I don't know if I can identify a single sin in the American healthcare industry. I can simply observe that we all care deeply about health, our own health and our family's health, and we are all, almost all of us, deeply unhappy with the quality of the experience that we receive. So you have this paradox that, that literally everyone is interested in the product and virtually nobody is happy with it. So that seems like something we ought to be able to fix, particularly given the underlying sophistication of the services and the science that sits behind this and the well-meaning nature of almost everybody who is associated with this business. So something is wrong when you think about it in, in those terms. And certainly one of the things that's wrong is that the information that's available to handle the improvement in the health of the individual is rarely harnessed in that effort. So. What I learned when I was working at Caesars, I had to set the healthcare policy for about 91,000 people and their dependents as we were a self-insured entity and we provided largely subsidized health insurance to our employees. And they thought of that as a rather passive exercise. We would give them a health insurance plan and they would go off and do the best they could with it. And really what we needed to do was to have a much more interactive exercise where we encouraged people who weren't making great decisions, either in the use of healthcare services or in the management of their own health, to be more attentive to it and to use the same type of behavioral economic 
levers that we had used in the customer space for our guests and now apply them to people in the conduct of a pursuit of their own health or their family's health. And those programs which were introduced in the early 2000s were very successful and caught a lot of people's attention and piqued my interest in moving from the sale of uh, hospitality services, if you will, to really trying to use these ideas for the improvement of health. And so you end up at Aetna, and your your group or your mandate there is to create what analytical product or what? Uh, the mandate was to turn the company from a healthcare finance entity, which is really what a health insurance company is largely, into more of a health services entity. So to see the growth of the company and its mission through the advancement of the health of its members rather than simply through the adjudication of a set of rules associated with the policies that the members are uh, participants in. And the idea, Sujit, that interested me the most was the question of why are so many people sicker than they need to be? So let's distinguish broadly two groups. There are people that are stricken with various diseases. They do the best they can. Medical science does the best it can. And it's unfortunate, but there's not that much more one can do. So let's take a premature birth as an example of this, or a rare cancer, or neurologic disease, ALS, something like that. Let's contrast that with cases where people have a diagnosis and they are given certain guidance by medical counsel that they then proceed not to follow to any great degree. And that could be hypertension or diabetes or various orthopedic issues, renal failure, so on. And as a result, they are substantially sicker and their health care is much more costly than it ought to be. So that's a conundrum. Why would people do that? Why, if you're told to do something, would you not do it in the interest of your own health? And yet that problem sits at the heart of so much of what plagues the American healthcare industry. So that issue in particular was of great interest to me. And so what's the opportunity now with all the data we're collecting, the incredible computing power we have, and a lot of smart companies who aren't necessarily healthcare companies wanting to get interested in, in solving that? Well, I think the first is to identify that this issue I've just described is perhaps the most important and vexing issue. So you see this, uh, this observation that uh, many of us notice when we're in meetings that you look around the table and there's a group of people that have Apple Watches and Fitbits on their wrists. They look awfully fit. There's this joke that show me a person with a Fitbit and I'll show you someone who doesn't need a Fitbit. So who doesn't have the Fitbit or the Apple Watch? And it's the person who's probably not in great shape. And if they were to look at the Fitbit, what they'd see is a lot of discouraging news. It says you haven't taken very many steps and you haven't stood up very much today and you haven't climbed a lot of stairs and so on. And of course, few of us like to look at things that give us bad news a lot. So we don't wear things like that if we're going to get a lot of bad news, right? So the idea is, Let's focus on people whose health could be notably improved. And we can use analytics to identify exactly who falls into that category. And we can identify rather precisely how much less costly that person would be if only they did the things their physicians are typically asking them to do. And then we can begin to experiment with them to see why they're not doing it. So an example of this that's very well known in the medical world is non-adherence to prescription medication. So let's imagine that you're hypertensive, you're given a drug to treat it, but you don't take it. Why would you not take it? Well, there's a lot of reasons why you might not take it. You might find it too costly. You might be logistically challenged in getting your hands on it. You might 
feel that you only take it on the days when you don't feel well, which is a surprisingly common description. You might decide that these medicines are full of chemicals and chemicals are bad for you. You may decide that you're feeling rather depressed today. You don't think anybody cares about you, so why bother taking this medicine today? And so on. And ex ante, we don't know which of these is the issue. We just know, we observe that you're not taking the medicine. Your physician often, by the way, doesn't know that because he or she's given you the prescription, but they can't tell whether you're taking the medicine or not. They ask you, and you may or may not tell them the truth, but they don't know. So we need to get into that and experiment with what would it take to get you to take that medicine? And how much more costly are you by not taking the medicine such that we could create a budget that would be profitably pursued to get you to take the medicine? These, these are exactly, by the way, the problems I solved in the casino business. So if I thought you could be a $1,000 customer, but you were only a $100 customer, I had 900 bucks to spend to get you to close that gap. Same thing's true in healthcare. If you're spending 50000 a year because you're taking poor care of yourself and it really ought to be ten, well, there's $40,000 swilling around to get you to take better care of yourself. And do you think the incentives are there for the payers of the world, the prescription drug companies of the world to actually drive better outcomes? Uh, is this, uh, just the economics, the industrial organization of healthcare in America function to get to that goal? It doesn't at the moment. And the misalignment of incentives is at the is at the center of why the system has grown into this mess that we're all so unhappy with. So if you think about the parties that you just mentioned, their incentives are rather different. The payer actually has a pretty strong incentive to get a person as healthy as they can because they bear the residual risk of the cost of the care. The hospital doesn't. The hospital gets paid more to the degree the person utilizes more services at the hospital. The physician, of course, has a Hippocratic duty to the health of the individual, but is paid largely on a piece rate basis. And the individual, of course, has an interest in their own health, but may not know quite how to get there. So you get this morass where the incentives are not at all well aligned, and the information that the parties use to make these decisions is quite poor. And so if we put aside uh, the analytics part and the, the, the data solution and the opportunities there, do you have a view on what you just described, the incentives and just the industrial organization uh, to put the incentives in the right place so the actual science can, can work? I think most economists agree that a necessary condition to move this along effectively is to get all the parties bearing some residual risk for the escalating cost of care so that the individual, the payer, and the provider are all motivated to get to a healthy outcome at a reasonable cost. So let me give you an example to try to illustrate the finer points of this. There are very costly anti-inflammatory drugs on the market today that cost $40,000 a year for an individual. And they treat a wide variety of conditions, some of which are very tough conditions for a patient to experience, some of them less tough. Who's going to decide where to spend $40,000 and where not to spend $40,000? That seems like a reasonable question to ask. For the purposes of the individual who is insured generally dollar for dollar after a deductible, you always want the best medicine. Why not? It doesn't cost you anything, and maybe there's a benefit. The physician seeking to keep the patient and perhaps do the best job medically they can also always wants the best medicine. But the person or the entity that carries the residual cost really 
can't afford to have everybody have the best medicine if it's not warranted for the conditions that the patient suffers from. So in the absence of all the parties sharing in that decision, it's very hard to come to a sensible solution. And those problems present themselves constantly in healthcare, uh, not only in uh, cases of the sort I described, but also in end-of-life circumstances and, and other cases where costs are very high. And do you think there's any models that are either working in states or local areas in the in, in America or uh, even abroad? Are there uh, other countries that have systems that function better? I mean, the argument is that America does have the most cutting edge technology and pharma companies, and that's driven by the profit motive, and they have to they have to be compensated for the risks that they're taking. Uh, and then other countries are just kind of free riding off of that innovation. How do you reconcile? that argument versus um, the cost containment idea and maybe what models are perhaps working either locally or abroad? Well, I'm going to try to answer a little simpler version of the question you asked because I don't think I can do justice to it in the way, uh, in the broader way in which it was posed. There are entities today that handle populations of patients with acute health conditions, typically elders who have Medicare Advantage plans who share in the risk associated with the cost of care for those folks. And they do a brilliant job of taking really good care of these patients. And they do so because they do much better preventive work than would happen in the absence of their intervention. They keep these folks out of the hospital when they don't need to be. They keep them out of the emergency room when an emergency room visit is not warranted. They make sure they take their medicine to the best of their ability. They involve non-physician medical professionals like social workers, mental health professionals, nurses, and administrative folks to handle a lot of the needs economically. And these integrated models where there's risk sharing among the parties is a very powerful sort of solution. And I would argue that we need to see more of that coming from all the groups that are active in American healthcare. So that would be not only government-supported systems like Medicare or Medicaid, mm -hmm. but also in employer-based systems that most of us have as the basis of our coverage. I think that would get the best of both worlds. You'd still have very strong economic incentives for breakthrough methods of care. You would still be able to pay high-end healthcare professionals very well to compensate them for the years of study they require. And you'd allow people to get high quality care that's suitable to the condition they need and to do the best preventive work they can. And so we're seeing, uh, at least in the private sector, some pretty interesting uh, healthcare business models emerging. Uh, CVS was just a drugstore chain for a long time and now they've gotten in a place where they're a much broader healthcare provider, health clinic, uh, and doing a lot of creative things and thinking about the business uh, in a different way. There's this Amazon, J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway initiative, which is three smart companies that have a lot of resources and want to be at the cutting edge. Any any of these models out there, uh, emerging models that seem interesting uh, from these uh, private sector uh, organizations? Uh, yeah, I think there's a tremendous amount of very productive innovation that's occurring. And let's take the two that you just mentioned. Now, let me note that the CVS deal was struck while I was still working at Aetna. And uh, I was actively involved in all of that, and I think the idea behind it is a very, very good one, which says that Americans need health care provided in a more convenient and low-cost setting close to where they live and more integrated into the way they live. 
So if you can provide a variety of services in the setting of a retail store like a CVS, which exists proximate to the vast majority of Americans, and you can do so uh, at a modest cost, and if you were further to integrate it in the way the insurance plan was itself constructed, you could make available a very compelling offering for a lot of Americans who aren't getting the care they need now. So I think that idea, to the degree that uh, the parties are able to execute it, is a tremendous source of innovation and movement in the healthcare system that can be very promising. What you see with Amazon, Berkshire, and, and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is just a dissatisfaction with what they've experienced from traditional payer systems over a long period of time. These are very innovative uh, people, and they're saying, we're going to take a shot at this ourselves. And I've listened to the principals talk about this, and I think they're confident they can do better, but they don't have a strong sense yet as to exactly how that's going to happen, and they're hiring people to help them do that. I think the good news about that is that it's liberating for lots of large employers who want to take greater active roles in how they can shape the healthcare uh, plans available to their employees. And if you think about the heterogeneity in employees, for example, the employees of the Financial Times live a, a lifestyle that's very different than the employees of Verizon or the employees of a retail store. And the healthcare plan ought to reflect that. And I think employers can play a, a very important role in helping to shape the way that they and their, their employees together go after this. So I, I think it's a great opportunity, even though it isn't yet very well formed. And so that leads to an interesting question. You're an economist uh, as well as, well as a uh, CEO, former CEO, uh, who had thousands, tens of thousands of employees, and uh, you were making healthcare decisions uh, for them. And that touches on a hallmark of the American system, which is that healthcare is employer-based system. Uh, and that probably, I think most people would have the sense that that's not the ideal framework. It's uh, and a consequence of the tax system and not really the, uh, the smartest way to do it. Do you have views that health care uh, insurance should be uh, decoupled from the employment, uh, employment decision? So this is a very rich topic. Now, of course, trained as I am, I'm almost obliged to agree with you that because there's this odd tax subsidy to health insurance for employees that there's something a little bit uh, inefficient about it, and that's undoubtedly true. The benefit of having a health plan associated with your employer is that because you're at work so much of your life, there's a lot of things that can be done on site and surrounding the work life that can enhance one's health in a way that would be unlikely to be achieved if it were entirely decoupled. So let's take uh, an example to try to illustrate the difference. Many employers are thinking about giving their employees a lump sum of money and saying, okay, Sujit, here's $20,000 that we used to spend on a plan that the company offered you. You go to an exchange and buy whatever plan you like. It's up to you, and next year we'll give you the, the same inflation-adjusted, and on you go. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. And, and people would then have to make informed decisions about these plans. The plans are very complicated, and people need help figuring out, even very sophisticated people need help figuring out which plan suits their family's health, but th those tools are around and can be built. The challenge is that you're, you're less likely to have things like workplace clinics that make going to the doctor very convenient. You're less likely to have a high degree of integration between certain health offerings that the employer favors and the, 
the convenient work-life access that you might want to have. In my case, I had clinics in the casinos, and the clinics were open hours that suited people who worked 24 hours a day. And we were able to save a lot of lives by doing that with folks that wouldn't have made it to an emergency room and wouldn't have gotten a biometric screening, wouldn't have gotten their hypertension diagnosed if they had a traditional arms-length healthcare plan. So I think those are the challenges. Now, could you replicate the benefit of that if people were buying on an exchange and the employer still offered an on-site doctor whose reimbursement went through the exchange? Sure, you could do things like that. But I think there's a strong role for the coupling of these things. You know, when you're in the business I used to be in, or if you run a, a, a restaurant or a retail store, you know that convenience matters to everybody. Everything that's convenient, we buy more of. And the same thing's true of healthcare. I'm a Bostonian. If I have to go into Longwood Avenue to the Harvard hospitals to see a doctor, I'm going to think really hard before I do that because it's a pain in the ass to go in there to do it. If there's a competent doctor close to where I am in a CVS or in my employer office building, I'm going to do a lot more things than I would otherwise. And that's not to be underestimated. And so uh, just taking this uh, a step back, we're creating massive amounts of data now. Computing power is really cheap and just the sheer amount of data is just staggering compared to when you started studying this 20 or 30 years ago. What are going to be the challenges to analyzing all that data, finding insights, rather than just being paralyzed uh, by all of it? I'm very optimistic about the promise that this offers. And let's use the example that came out of the uh, clinical oncology meetings of last week that indicated that a large number of American women with certain types of breast cancer had been receiving chemotherapy that they probably didn't need for a very long time. So this is an example of precision medicine being able to look at the specifics of a cancer and say, this woman needs aggressive chemotherapy, but these three women don't. It won't affect their prognosis at all. I, I think the potential to do this is, is right there. And the, t- the technologies and the people who know how to do it are right there. The question is, who wants to do it? And who's going to be the actor to make that happen? And that's where this question of incentives really, I think, comes to bear. So is it going to be the physician? Is it going to be the large provider system like a hospital or a practice group of oncologists in this case? Is it going to be the payer who's seeking this? Is it going to be the employer who rallies on behalf of their employee to see to it that that happens? So, for example, if a woman works at the Financial Times and she's diagnosed with breast cancer, does someone there say, you know, you really need to go see these people who will help you decide what the right oncological protocol is going to be? Uh, That's the question that has to be determined. I mean, it is very much like the problem in business around customer loyalty generally. The tools to advance customer loyalty have been around a long time. Very few people use them. And that's what worries you about this, is that the tools could be great for the advancement of care, you just got to organize the system so people use them. And so how do you think decision science uh, is going to be become more important in, in management science? Like how are business people trained in these methods or even school children, college students, high school students? Like what, how is the world going to need to change to be able to be much more sophisticated about using analy- and analyzing data? I think places like my old employer, like Harvard Business School, are going to need to recognize the centrality of this method for the way people make decisions. 
And if you think about it in the most uh, 30,000 foot sort of level, what analytics does is it allows you to make decisions that are highly granular. So not all women with breast cancer need chemotherapy, only certain ones do. And we can tell them apart based on observable features of the cancer, right? A great application. So you may not be a person who's ever going to use these methods yourself, but you need to recognize that such methods exist and know when they should be applied to challenges that you may be working on. And for that reason, I think that the curricula of universities need to come to exhibit this in a way they don't today. And in businesses, people need to see that they have to have some command of this if they're going to progress through a, an organization. I, I cannot report that that is true today, but I think over time it's definitely going to need to be. And so when you were at Caesars and Harrah's, you have this total rewards program, and you're collecting a lot of data on people who are coming through casinos. You know what they're eating, where the, what rooms they're staying in, where they're spending money on the casino floor. Uh, as we just talked about this avalanche of data, there's just so much data being collected. You see that now with the social media and particularly the free social media networks where in exchange for getting on their platforms for free, you're giving up a lot of information. What are the... Uh, the ethical questions that are, are coming up with um, just the amount of data consumers are giving up and where they're perhaps not informed uh, about what it is they're surrendering and how that data is being used and how do you think about the ethics of just all the uh, information that is out there now? Well, that that is a very rich question, of course, and we thought about this a lot when we started our work at Caesars well before the issues that have come up recently. been, of course, in healthcare, it's all the more salient because we're talking about the most personal information each of us is concerned with. So I, the way I've always thought about this is that we wish to invite you, our guest or customer or member, to engage in an exchange of information in which we voluntarily agree to hold certain responsibilities. And we make clear to you what those responsibilities will be. So at Caesars, it was very clear. We're going to use this information to give you things that you find appealing and to encourage you to come do more with us. But we will never sell it to a third party. We won't sell it to political parties. We won't sell it to real estate developers or anyone else. We will use it only insofar as it advances the richness of our relationship with you. And we'll try not to prove to you that we're stupid by ignoring what you tell us. And that worked very, very well, even though, as you might imagine, people's gambling habits are something about which they have some sensitivity. I think in healthcare, generally the same notion applies, although the parameters are more strict, which is we need this information to do the best possible work for the advancement of your health, but we're not going to take advantage of that by selling it to every possible entity that would find this information useful to come to you with every imaginable type of solicitation or for the use of things like uh, political canvassing or things of that sort. Now, the cases that get very interesting in my old job, at least at Caesars, were cases like on Facebook, there was a function where people would identify that they had just arrived at a certain hotel. So you might have, for example, indicated that you had just checked into the Bellagio Hotel. Now, why you did that is known to you, not necessarily to me, but presumably you knew you were doing it. 
And then we might send you a solicitation because we now know you're in Las Vegas, but you're not staying with us. So maybe we'll offer you a ticket to an event or a restaurant or something like that sort. And those sorts of things that were geographically relevant worked rather well. A lot of the other complexity of the data turned out to be much less useful commercially. But I think just to, to circle back to the crux of the question, I think there has to be well understood parameters of responsibility and privacy that the parties agree to and, and have some dialogue about as they proceed. There's a lot of good to be done. Do you think there's a, a reckoning coming? Uh, do, we, uh, do we fully understand how our data is being used and exploited by marketers and companies? No, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure I don't know all the ways, and uh, I'm certain that most people don't. And I think there, you, you live in a very delicate situation. Facebook has certainly experienced it, where people are so unhappy with what happened that they push way back. And you could end up in a situation where people are um, pushed to a point that isn't really even in their own interest. You, you know, for example, when I was working in the health insurance business, there were, I would often be speaking to groups where somebody would doubt the sincerity of the interest of the health insurer to improve their health. They would say, well, if I give you this information, you're just going to make it harder for me to get the services I'm looking for, which of course was not the intention at all. But you can imagine how people could be skeptical if they'd had a bad experience for some reason. So I think having a dialogue about that, very important and staying close to people about it because you really, it, it would be a pity if the advancement that analytics provides were impeded because we all felt so concerned about our privacy that we couldn't share the data upon which that analytics depends. And so how do CEOs and boards begin to think about this in a intelligent way? Because they're, they're business people, but they're making very important uh, ethical uh, decisions that don't have easy answers. And so what's the way to start having that discussion for, for management teams? I've not been very impressed with watching boards work on this problem. I think boards generally work on, I don't want to say just the wrong problem, but they work on a very limited set of problems. So they work on things like data breaches. So there every there've been a lot of companies with data breaches. So not surprisingly, boards are overwhelmingly interested in the matters that are being, precautions that are taken to prevent a data breach. So that that's fine. That's a worthy topic. But it doesn't get to any of the things your questions were suggesting. And I think that would be a much richer topic for conversation between executives, marketers, uh, ombudspeople, lawyers, and others in the company that are working on these questions versus what you typically hear at the board level, which is, I think, much, much more limited and less rich. Do you think ultimately regulators and the government are just going to put down the, uh, the constraints and the, the boundaries on this? Well, I hope not. I'll give you an example that I, I found enormously frustrating that had the best of intentions but didn't work out that way. So Medicare is a very tightly regulated business in the United States. And one of the provisions of Medicare is that any provider of Medicare services can't in any way discriminate among recipients of Medicare. So for example, if I'm a health insurer and I have two members, I can't offer something to one of them that I don't offer to both of them under terms that are agreeable to both. So I was working on the use of Apple Watches as uh, wearable devices to help people improve their health. And there were certain Medicare recipients for whom this would be a great help, for example, if they had an iPhone, and others for whom it wouldn't be much help if, for example, they had an Android phone. 
And I couldn't get very far because that was a discriminatory practice. If I offered you an iPhone and you could use it and I offered your colleague one and she couldn't use it, then I was, or I didn't offer her one because she couldn't use it, then I was discriminating. So obviously there's a big role for government to regulate, as business people always say, in an effective manner. But the the question is, how do you get that done properly? The, The whole basis of our discussion today of analytics is you don't want to treat everybody the same. So you don't want to treat a person who is principally fighting osteoporosis the same as a person who's principally fighting hypertension. But there's a lot in government regulation that would say that you have to treat both the same. And analytics can do so much to help you differentiate the way in which you approach these parties. But if you're burdened with a variety of rules that prohibit any sort of interpersonal differentiation like that, it's very challenging. And so you just brought up uh, Apple and Android, and those are ecosystems, uh, if you will. And uh, one of the big themes of what we're talking about today is uh, loyalty. Uh, But with these massive ecosystems, whether it's Amazon, Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, what they try to do is create these communities where you're returning to it, not because you think it's the best product, if you will, but because you've got uh, every other device or service or product in that ecosystem or walled garden, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you worry about uh, just the sheer consolidation and just the influence these any one of these large ecosystems have? You can see that in healthcare, too. CVS is turning into a massive company. Amazon and Apple want to get into healthcare. What are the risks of just the erosion of consumer choice uh, where companies aren't competing really anymore for, for customers? I have some general concern about the level of consolidation that's happened in American life during the period that I've been an adult. I could take you through a lot of industries, whether it's banking or airlines or others, that have seen a fairly high degree of additional concentration and limits on the options that are available to customers. And while the tech companies are very big and very powerful, it remains the case that consumers still in general, have a lot of choices over how they want to proceed. I just came off of many years of being a Microsoft user in many respects. I switched over to a Google user for services that are largely competitive with the ones I had before, and if neither of those had suited me, there might have been some other alternatives. And that transition is not always fun, but someone can certainly do it. So I guess I'm a little less worried about those cases where the level of competition and innovation is so strong. And I'm, I am worried about other instances where the level of consolidation seems to have gotten to be pretty high. And you're see, you are seeing a little bit of that in healthcare. And the place that I'd like to close with is uh, we started this discussion with your academic background and how that went to uh, being a business person. Uh, and so we'd be curious to get your thoughts about the very kind of analytical, quantitative, academic part of your career, but also the fact that you were a CEO and you managed tens of thousands of employees who were working on a casino floor uh, and restaurant uh, workers, uh, and very different than the colleagues that you had at Harvard or MIT. And how does uh, how does a business person reconcile those two parts of being math whiz, but also someone who has to motivate and lead an organization of thousands of people who are who are human beings? Well, I I suspect other people have learned largely the same lesson the way I did, which is that trying to figure out what the right, if you will, answer to a circumstance might be 
or in the case of a business school uh, discussion, what the right strategy might be, and then implementing it well are really two different things. And if you look at companies that we all admire or institutions that we've admired that persevere over long periods of time, great universities, great uh, publishing houses like yours, great consultancies or businesses, it's because not only have they had capable strategies, but they've been consistently excellent in the execution of those strategies. And those proficiencies are different. So they involve of course, hiring talented people and giving them direction as to what it is they can do to contribute and establishing a certain set of practices for integrity and veracity and other things that allow really talented people to do good work consistently and giving them an incentive system that pairs their success with that of the company and so on. So there are these, the need for a series of institutional and process-oriented structures to make even the most elegant strategy work. And as an executive, particularly if you happen to have an academic training like I did, you, you can't come to think that the idea or the strategy itself is sufficient. It just isn't. So I'll give you uh, perhaps a useful example. I knew that better service would drive better loyalty and we'd have better financial performance in the casino business. And I spent a lot of time talking to our employees about it and giving them simple arithmetic illustrations of it and so on. But if you're a valet parker or a cocktail server or a a housekeeper, that doesn't tell you what to do in the next eight hours. So until we instituted what we called buzz sessions, which were these little meetings that we held before every shift where we'd say, okay, today the hotel is really full. We're a little short-staffed. We have this group of people staying in the hotel. Here's the sort of things they care about. Here's what we need to do to deliver great service today. And here's the measurement system and the reward package that's going to come to you for having done a good job. Then the world started changing. So the the combination of these two elements is really, you can't do one without the other. I think that's the biggest aha to people who have my kind of egghead training and then wind up trying to do these things. Very good. Gary Loveman, thank you for joining Alpha Chat. My pleasure. That was Alpha Chat, produced and edited by Amy King. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 